Hallelujah. Father, we read in your word, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and his wondrous works to the children of man. Father, we confess that we are thankful to you this morning. Your steadfast love has reached into our hearts, all who love and obey Jesus Christ, who have confessed their sin and placed faith in his salvation alone, purchased by his death on Calvary. Truly, the wondrous works have been shown to us of our God, who is powerful to redeem, whose arm is not too short to save, who entered history, became a man to die in the place of sinners. Lord, we cry out to you in our trouble, knowing that we turn to the only source of hope. You delivered them from their distress. You sent your word and healed them. And so it is today, the same source of healing, the same source of authority, the same source of power, your word. Your word became flesh and dwelt among us in Christ our Lord. We lift up his name today. Now as we turn to your holy word, I pray that you would encourage us and write it upon the tables of our hearts. I pray that it would find its way into the fabric of our souls to point out areas of shortcomings that we might repent and walk in a manner worthy of our call. We pray that the knowledge of Jesus Christ would go forth through the proclamation of your infallible truth and draw unto repentance and faith the lost and the depressed yet remain in their sin. We pray, Lord, that you would awaken a lost world to the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ and that you would use the difficulties of our hours, the trial of the day to accomplish just that, that we would look to your word for healing, that we would reject the idols of man and we would exalt the glory of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears to hear your word today and I pray that it would have its effect by fruit bearing for your kingdom and your glory in all that you might be magnified on this earth as the waters cover the sea and your church might be equipped to faithfully and consistently proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, the risen and ascended Lord. In his name we pray, amen. What a privilege it is to turn to the Holy Scriptures which hold out for us the message of salvation for all time. Today we turn in the book of Psalms to Psalm 102. The aim of this morning's message is to reinforce our prayers and songs with biblical themes of penitent or repentant worship. The Psalms do exactly this. If we allow them to influence our thinking, our prayers, and our worship, they will infuse them with biblical themes of true repentance. Psalm 102, let me suggest a title for you and this, uh, and this message this morning, A Sackcloth Song. Psalm 102, A Sackcloth Song. Now this relates to our messages which have preceded today, and we'll touch upon those in a moment. But before we get started in an exposition, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Stand again out of reverence for God's Scripture today, and listen in your hearing as the Word of God is proclaimed in Psalm 102. Here is the Word of God, beginning with this title. A prayer of one afflicted, when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. 
My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread because of my loud groaning. My bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemy taunts me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Verse 12. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who are doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem his praise, when peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. Verse 23, He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. O oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. You whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As providence would have it, our Psalm a Month series presents us Psalm 102, we've just read today. This message follows two sermons from various passages in Nehemiah 8 through 10. And we have emphasized in these occasional sermons the seriousness of the historical moment we find ourselves in this day. Indeed, uh, April 12th, according to my calendar here, in the year 2020. We find ourselves in a, his, in a significant historical moment as our world has been interrupted by a viral pandemic that has ground ordinary life to a screeching halt. And times like these raise the question, which we postulated several weeks ago, how should we respond to such a crisis? Or how does the Bible instruct us to respond to a trial such as we have in our world today? We've learned from Nehemiah that under the judgments of God, there are two options, sackcloth or slavery. That is repentance represented by sackcloth, humiliating ourselves, humbling ourselves, taking on a posture of humility before the Lord, confessing our sins, repentance, so that would be sackcloth or slavery. More judgment and conscription of ourselves into the tyranny of our sinful overlords and masters. So that's our choices. We have determined we have sackcloth or slavery. We have repentance or destruction. 
We've also studied specific documentation of repentance modeled for us at this time in Nehemiah, where the people sealed their intentions by a firm document, a firm covenant in writing. And now today, Psalm 102 presents us with a powerful anthem to be sung in sackcloth, as it were. This is a sackcloth song. Adam Clark comments on this, on this psalm, quote, The psalm has been attributed to Daniel, to Jeremiah, to Nehemiah, or to some of the other prophets who flourished during that time of captivity. So that is to say, commentators have speculated that perhaps Nehemiah was actually the author of Psalm 102. Why? Because it fits so perfectly with that era of history. But may I suggest it fits perfectly with this era of history as well, as it is a psalm of repentant, of penitent worship. Now Spurgeon had some commentary on the psalm as well, and from his writings I pulled this quote. This is a patriot's lament. Incidentally, Spurgeon titled his sermon on this psalm, The Patriot's Plaint, which is short for complaint or a substitute word for complaint. The Patriot's Complaint. This is a patriot's lament, he says, over his country's distress. He goes further. He arrays himself in the griefs of his nation as in a garment of sackcloth, and casts her dust and ashes upon his head as the ensigns and causes of his sorrow. He goes further. He is moreover sore afflicted in body by sickness, but the miseries of his people cause him a far more bitter anguish. Let me pause and interject right there. He is moreover sorely afflicted in body by sickness, but the miseries of his people cause him far more bitter anguish. I wonder if we could say the same. Could we follow the testimony of Psalm 102? Though this man is suffering, indeed a raging fever, we can discern when he describes his bones burning as if a furnace has been alit within his frame, yet he has more anguish still when he considers that he lives among a sinful people and a broken down society who must needs repent or like his frail body will fail in a generation. Spurgeon goes further. This he pours out in an earnest, pathetic lamentation. Not, however, without hope, does the patriot mourn. He has faith in God and looks for the resurrection of the nation through the omnipotent favor of the Lord. He has faith in God and looks for the resurrection of the nation through the omnipotent favor of the Lord. Today we turn to Psalm 102 and let me suggest a heading. As an anthem for trying times, Psalm 102 presents the following. Or in a shorter form, a heading could be this, what to sing. First of all, Psalm 102 presents us a lament in affliction, verses 1 through 11. Secondly, an appeal to heaven, verses 12 through 17. Thirdly, a publication of the gospel, verses 18 through 22. And finally, a proclamation of sovereign glory, verses 25 through 28. What should we sing in sackcloth? A lament and affliction, the author suggests in Psalm 102. An appeal to heaven, a publication of the gospel, a proclamation of the sovereign glory of our God. Let us turn to the first section, a lament and affliction. Psalm 102, 1 through 11. Consider our own times as we review these verses. 
the affliction that has descended upon us in the form of disease and economic collapse. And should this not move us to cry out, as the author of Psalm 102 did in verse 1, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. In verses 1 and 2, we sense an urgency. This affliction that he has found himself in, in the ruined state of his nation, and in the failing of his own body, the sickness that he's dealing with, it causes him to cry out urgently to his God in prayer. And so affliction in our day should motivate us to do the same. Whether it's the threat or the reality of sickness that descends upon our frame, the threat or the reality, in fact, reality as I judge it, of the sickness of our body politic, of this nation, of this culture, which God's judgment has descended upon us, and rightfully so, under these conditions, these things ought to move us to pray, to cry out to God, to offer our laments in affliction with urgency. <clears throat> There's a refrain in verses 23 and 24, where the psalmist is honest and vulnerable about his weakened state, both of soul and body, and he cries out in verse 23, He, speaking of God, has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. O oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Now, we hear a lot of talk these days of this insidious virus. Some call it the invisible enemy. You see pictures in Technicolor on news stories, ad nauseum, all over the internet of this tiny little invader that has the power, they say, in these news stories to take our life. And it's mysterious to us. And so we are fighting this invisible enemy. We've declared war on this virus. But one thing is often missing. One truth is missing often in the commentary surrounding this moment in our history. And it is this. The psalmist recognizes that it wasn't a virus that caused his bones to burn, most ultimately speaking. It wasn't an economic collapse that caused the stones and mortar to fall in ruin and dust around him. But it was the Lord who had broken his strength and broken the strength of his nation. It was the Lord who had threatened to, sh to shorten the days of Judah and to shorten his own days. He says, Oh my God, I say, take not away from me in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. And so it was the Lord who had the power to restore life back again to his nation and to his physical frame. What does Hezekiah cry out when his life is required of him by the Lord in his sovereign judgments? He cries out to the maker of heaven and earth to extend the life of his kingdom and extend his own life, and the Lord answers. It wasn't a vaccine that held out hope and salvation for Hezekiah. It was the favor of the Lord. And the Lord might use a medical breakthrough. The Lord might use wisdom of the uh, doctors and, the, and, and these different things to uh, respond in our day of helplessness, but Make no bones about it. Don't get it twisted. This is the Lord himself behind these things. It is he who has broken our strength, and it is he who has the power to restore it again. And so we should lift up our lament and affliction with urgency to the Lord of viruses, to the Lord of nations, to the Lord of this world. We should cry out to him. Verses 1 and 2 of our text do exactly this. They model this. The author of Psalm 102 says, Hear my Cry, prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. 
This situation has served to instill within the author a passionate sense of emergency. He cannot afford to be complacent, apathetic, or indifferent in times like these. And neither can we, saints. We cannot afford. This situation we are in right now has shown us our vulnerability and ought to proclaim loud and clear to the ears of all the non-fools in our land that we cannot afford to be complacent, apathetic, or indifferent, especially spiritually, in times like these. And so he, our author, repents of all the lethargic attitudes, all of the uh, indifference of his past, and he recognizes, inasmuch as this distress has been commissioned sovereignly by the Lord, that there is a purpose behind it. God has broken his strength in mid-course. God has broken our strength in mid-course as a nation. There are a hundred news stories that could evidence this fact, even in our day. I listened to one interview with an expert on domestic oil production in America, and he said that if oil wells don't uh, return to full production, that we actually damage our independent oil supply, that we may never be able to recover. It is interesting. You read news story after news story, and you find the bind that we are in. We've only scratched the surface in the possible vulnerabilities of layer upon layer upon layer, not only our physical health, but the economic vitality of this once great superpower nation. It's all threatened. Why? Because the Lord has halted us mid-course. He has broken our strength. He has shortened our days. And we must cry to Him, Oh my God, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. A lament and affliction carries this theme of urgency. It carries this sense of honesty about suffering, recognizing that we cry out to Him in our desperation. He is the only place to turn, and we do so honestly. And our author does this in verses 3 through 5. For my days pass away like smoke, my bones burn like a furnace. Now, there is a certain arrogance that one could have if they resolve in themselves to keep a stiff, stiff upper lip, tell themselves everything will be okay, pull themselves up by the bootstraps, settle down, and just grit their teeth and endure. This can be actually a quite proud way to endure a trial. It is much more in keeping with scriptures to honestly confess our vulnerability, our brokenness, our frailty, our weakness before the Lord. He has shown us in times like these that our days pass away like smoke. Smoke goes up from a fire and it is washed away as a vapor in the wind and it disappears and we If we were to chase it down with a high-speed vehicle, we would never find it again because it dissipates in the atmosphere, never to be rediscovered. This is the analogy. Similarly, his bones burn like a furnace on the inside. Some of you volunteer firemen in the hearing of this this message know what it's like when the trusses, you know, the uh, structure of a ceiling or of a roof system in a house begins to burn. Suddenly, the very skeleton of that edifice is compromised and it's just seconds away. And in some cases, one more second of burning and the entire place will collapse. And the author of Psalm 102 confesses that he is vulnerable like a wooden building in the, fl- in the flames. His bones are burning like a furnace. His heart is struck down like grass and has withered. This reminds us, does it not, of the withering of the grass that Peter and Isaiah use as imagery as well. He says, I forget to eat my bread. He's in so much pain, he's lost his appetite. Even though he needs food to live, he cannot bear its taste because of the weight of the suffering that his bones are holding up and he's almost at the point of breaking. Verse 5, because of my loud groaning, my bones cling 
to my flesh. Urgency and suffering. A raging fever like a furnace is burning through the course of his being, reminding him of the state of his nation. He understands the parallel between the frailty of his own body and the broken stones and the dust of a once great city of God, the temple that once stood as the beacon and the flagship and the point of contact between a God, a holy God, and a sinner is lying in ruins after the occupation, no doubt, by Babylon and so forth, and the exile of the people who once dwelt there. And just like his body is failing by sickness, so the sickness of sin has destroyed his nation, and now he cries out with a groaning from his bones all the way through to his consciousness for salvation from the only place he knows to turn. He goes further to describe his alienation. He says in verse 6 and 7, I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. And in this analogy, he relates his sense of disconnection from the faithful gathered assembly, from the, those who would be called together to worship the Lord in that holy place. He no longer has that reassuring place. You know, uh, David cries in another psalm that birds find a resting place in the house of God. And if he could just find a habitation for himself, if he could be but a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. But at this time, there was no door. So that, uh, that a man like this, author of Psalm 102, could even be the keeper of, it all lie in ruins. And so he's like an alienated, like a lonely, like a deserted owl, a desert owl who has very little to eat, is lost in the wilderness and is searching for a place to build his habitation and nest. Or like a lonely sparrow on a housetop, searching for his next meal, wondering if he may find it. This is a lament in affliction. Finally, he acknowledges in verse 9, 10, and 11, uh, verse, beginning in verse 8, a little bit more of the purpose for this affliction. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Here's a purpose statement, verse 10. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. I wonder if our first response in times of sorrow and affliction is that the Lord is chastising us. That was certainly the response of the author of this psalm. He recognized that these trials that he was enduring, this affliction that God had called him through, had purpose. And indeed, God in his indignation and anger had taken him up and thrown him down to show him something. That his days are like an evening shadow. Once again, as the sun is setting, the shadows grow long. And you know how quickly a sunset is over. You turn away for a few moments, and the sun has dipped beneath the horizon. Pretty soon it's dark. And just that quickly, hope can be lost if God does not sustain us. We wither away like grass, he says. He withers away like the grass of the field, which 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25 speaks of. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Which is a quote, of course, from Isaiah 40, verse 6 through 8. We've studied these verses of late. The breath of the Lord actually causes the flesh to fail and to wither like grass. And so the only thing that ultimately stands is the word of God. Those who are connected to the word of God, Jesus Christ, find their hope and endurance in Him. 
And so in this lament of affliction, the author recognizes this. With urgency, his suffering and alienation have purpose. He needs to learn the lesson of chastisement. And so turn from his sins and confess his shortcomings and place his faith in the word of God and the author of that word, the only source of healing. This is what we sing in sackcloth. This is an anthem for trying times. Psalm 102 presents a lament in affliction. Second major point, Psalm 102 presents an appeal to heaven. There's a definite shift in tone in verse 12. Verse 11, my days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. Notice the contrast. The psalmist is like a fever-ridden, almost corpse in a land that has uh, been destroyed. He lies in ruins, barely alive, like a bird without a home. But the Lord is enthroned forever. Have any of us doubted that in these days of difficult trial in our land, that God is any less on His throne than He was the moment before when our economy was strong and blessings felt like they were abounding? If we do, we must repent. The Lord is enthroned forever. And that means that He has purposes in the chastising of individuals and nations. And there is comfort in knowing that He is sovereign over days of abundance and over days of affliction. You are remembered throughout all generations. There is one constant. Nations rise and fall. Bodies thrive and fail. Peoples come and go. Cultures thrive and rot. But there is one who is remembered throughout all generations. And that is the Lord who is enthroned forever. He is the one who is invincible. The invincible lordship of the heavenly one, of Yahweh, enthroned forever. He is the one to whom we must make our appeal. Uh, some of us were talking recently how vulnerable we've proven to be in many areas in this day and age in which we live. Even an aircraft carrier which boasts more firepower than whole nations have had in the past is proven vulnerable when coronavirus wipes out, you know, whatever, a tenth of their entire crew, maybe even more to the tune of thousands. And suddenly, you know, this ship is... Uh, this uh, ship is uh, has to dock and so forth, and then its commander is relieved because he signaled to the world the weakness of our Navy right now as so many of his crew is sick and so forth. What does this teach us? Our war machine is not invincible. We can be broken in a moment. We can be destroyed overnight. Our cities can be emptied in a day, but not so with the Lord. Make your appeal to heaven, not U.S. military, not our ability to secure our borders, not a strong and well-armored, you know, uh, war machine that can fight all our battles abroad so we don't have to fight them here and secure indefinite peace and comfort and thriving economy, the things that galvanize our attention and influence our votes on election year. No, make your appeal to heaven. Why? Because the Lord is the one who is invincible. The invincible lordship of Yahweh is the place to bring our plea. The invincible appeal or the appeal to heaven goes further to recognize in Psalm 102 the covenant occasion. Verse 13 You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. There's a covenant occasion that uh, fills the author with confidence. You will arise and have pity on Zion. You see, the author remembers the promises all the way back to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. 
He knows that the Lord, Yahweh, the invincible one, will preserve a remnant even in days when judgment has fallen upon the land. And so he knows that there is a time, an appointed time, the fullness of time, if you will, for favor to return to Zion. And to this covenant, he makes his appeal. He bases his assurance of hope for the future on the covenant promises of God. This is the only place to base our hope. If you look in the New, in New Testament language, you will find similar references in Galatians 4.4, Ephesians 1.10. In both these references, Paul talks about the coming incarnate one, the advent of Jesus Christ in flesh into world history. This, he says, was an appointed time or the fullness of time. This is to say that on covenant occasions, the author of history inter intervenes for his glory and his namesake with his salvation plan. The author of Psalm 102 knows that he will one day return to the rubble of Jerusalem and that there will be hope of rebuilding in the future. The kingdom of God and the people of God will not suffer ultimate ruin. But for now, think of this imagery, he scoops up the dust from off the streets of the, of the ruined city and places it on his head. For your servants hold their stones dear. Imagine a man returning to the place of his dwelling with Nehemiah and, and company, coming back to these piles of stones and rubble in the streets. And his tears begin to flow down their face as they see the once great city, the once, uh, the, the once uh, uh, temple, or the, the once... Uh, solidly constructed temple, the envy of the nations and the center of the worship of the people. He sees all this in a pile of ruins on the horizon. Tears begin to flow down his face as he and the faithful few return to this area. And finally, as weeping from their long journey, heavy of both soul and body, they crumple beneath, or they crumple in the premises of the once uh, great city and they grab a stone and weep. They reach down and they pick up the dust and they place it on their heads. This is the picture of what's going on here. Your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. In other words, there is hope in God's intentions to build a habitation for Him to dwell with His people. There is an appointed time. All may seem lost right now. But those who are faithful recognize that true hope and assurance and security lies in the promises of God's restoration. He will build for himself a city. He will make for himself a habitation among his own. Those dear stones and that precious dust will be reassembled into walls and homes. And most of all, a habitation for the Lord to dwell among his people. And this has happened for us in manifold ways beyond anything the author of Psalm 102 could possibly imagine in full when Jesus Christ came and tabernacled or templed, it is, that is to say, among us. Language that indicates that Emmanuel, God with man, is alive in the person, God and man, fully God, fully man, walking among us, the incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Trinity here and now the geographic proximity is surpassed in the human heart, becoming the dwelling place, the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. And the woman at the well receives them. She's among the first to receive this news that those who worship me will worship me in spirit and in truth. And all who clung to the stones and the mortar of God's purposes of old cried out in praise when they heard this message because they knew that the dwelling place of favor with the Lord was being rebuilt through his Messiah. 
For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. goes further, nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. The Lord through his mighty deeds in ransoming and rescuing his people in times of great trial, in times of great judgment, he does so arresting the attention of the nations around. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Though pitiful, though a pitiful sight at first, nations take notice of the purpose of God through his people as his kingdom is reconstructed through an unlikely few. And this happened in the days of Nehemiah, as we've read. And this is happening right now through the proclamation of the gospel of the King of Kings, even as we speak, as his word is going forth to all nations. I was greatly encouraged this week to hear from Evan that the prime minister of Ethiopia has issued a call to pray and to fast for an entire month in that country. To turn to the one true God, the only God there is, and pray that he might be merciful and spare their land destruction from the coronavirus. I've joked in recent days that it's time for America to be colonized by Ethiopia. If they're going to be a godly nation, I'd rather be ruled by them to be ruled by this apostate body politic. Nevertheless, pray that the Lord would cause our leaders to repent, to call out unequivocally and without contradiction, without syncretism, without mixing in other idols, that we might turn in fasting and prayer to the only God there is, that we would cry out, and that in so doing, He would arrest the attention of the nations around. When we see the Lord move, answer our prayers, and against all odds, restore us to a place of significance as He did His people of old, it is a message, it is a light to the surrounding nations, and it gathers the attention of the nations. And God uses times of restoration to strike fear and of His name among the kings of the earth and the peoples that surround. And God is doing this even today through the proclamation of the gospel. Let's pray that He amplifies His work even more, even in times such as the ones in we live, that we live in right now. In this appeal to heaven, the author recognizes a resurrection hope. He says, the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in His glory. Lord would build up Zion and appear in His glory in ultimate ways in the future. And here we see echoes of Messianic prophecy to come. On Palm, and what has come to be known as Palm Sunday, we remember culturally the triumphal entry where Christ enters as King into the city of David, into Zion, that is to say. And on that day, we see fulfillment of language like this. The Lord, Yahweh, Christ, God in flesh, building up Zion, appearing in His glory. At the Mount of Transfiguration, a glimpse of the pre-incarnate glory of Christ was available to those three disciples that saw Him on the mountain. And Peter cries out almost impulsively, uh, let us build a tabernacle for you. And there's, there is rhyme and reason to what he was saying, because the glory of God up to this point has only dwelt in a tabernacle. But the glory of God was about to surpass the geographic confines of that area of tabernacle and temple worship unto the whole world. This was the Lord's plan to build up Zion as a light to the peoples and to appear in glory to America, to Ethiopia, to every nation around this globe as His gospel goes forth, covering the world as the waters 
cover the sea. And so this is the hope that is recognized in Psalm 102. This is what we ought to sing in sackcloth, an anthem for trying times, presenting to us a lament and affliction and an appeal to heaven. Thirdly, building on this, a publication of the gospel. Verse 18, let this be recorded for a generation to come. Does this not remind us of Nehemiah's day? They made a covenant, a firm document, covenant in writing. Why? Because they wanted their commitment to repent and to turn to be recorded for generations to come. So that a people yet to be created, multi-generations into the future, may praise the Lord. The Lord has written down His work through history so that a remnant in every generation might turn, repent of their sin, place faith in Christ, and be encouraged that His work is crossing the span of history until such time as He judges the storehouses of the elect full and He returns in glory to save His people and to judge once and for all His enemies and to set up His kingdom never to be challenged again. This will be recorded for a generation to come so that the people yet created may praise the Lord. The publication of the gospel in times like ours needs to be considered a memorial event. In other words, we selfishly cry out for our own salvation, that the Lord would spare us, that we would live to see tomorrow, that we would have as happy and easy and convenient of a life as possible. But the Lord never saves His people for their sake. He saves them ultimately for His own sake and for His glory. If the Lord should be pleased to answer our prayer, deliver us from this virus, and restore us as a people to more solid footing in all these areas we mentioned, it will be for the purpose of setting up a memorial. And we should record it. We should proclaim it for generations to come that it is God who gets the glory for rebuilding this broken land. It is God who should be praised for saving our body in one more day of health in this veil of tears. Altars of old recognize as much. Remember, Abraham, he was an altar builder. Jacob was as well. Other faithful uh, servants, Moses, uh, Noah, they would set up altars. Why? They're memorial places of remembrance. Recently, I was reminded in the study of this sermon, conversations Danny and I were having about, you guys remember Kirk Cameron produced a movie called Monumental. There was something of an altar intention in this monument that would show a pathway back to regain liberty. Basically, an altar that would hold out the message of repentance if we should ever find ourselves in the place we are right now as a nation. So in our own history, we have something of an application of 102.18, a record for generations to come so that a people yet created may praise the Lord. Pray that we return to whatever godly roots we had, ultimately that we return to the only godly foundation for any healthy country, that is the word, the law, the truth of the Lord, our Lord, who laid forth in His holy word the order of things and the way that we should be organized and so forth and His moral law. In verse 19, the author speaks of the condescension of the Lord. Now this is good news that he is publicizing. Good news, gospel. He looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners to set free those who were doomed to die. You see, there is an immeasurable distance, an eternal chasm between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of men. Yet God in his condescension makes himself of, of low estate to meet man uh, on in, on this earth, chiefly through the incarnation. And these words anticipate Philippians 2, verses 6 through 10, 
sometimes called the Carmen Christi or Hymn to Christ, where it lays forth how Christ, who enjoyed this pre-incarnate glory, set that aside or veiled it for a time, stooped low and took on flesh to satisfy the conditions of our atonement and our redemption, to save us from our sins. But he didn't stay in the grave, did he? On this day, we often remember that there was just three days that God intended for his son to be in the grave. But on the third day, it was proven that death could not hold him. And he was victorious. He rose again. And in his resurrection, he secured our own hope for eternal life. He defeated sin and the wages thereof in defeating death. Where is the sting of death itself? What happened to our last enemy? It was destroyed on Calvary. It was left in the grave when Jesus arose. If we turn to the Gospels, we find in references in Matthew and so forth that Christ was put in the grave and the powers of darkness began to grow nervous. Why? They thought that there was a chance that their plan could be foiled. They were correct. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day was instructions that were given in Matthew 27, verse 64 lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. Verse 66, so they went out and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is one of my favorite verses in the uh, whole story of redemption. Why? Because there's three elements here that we see, a stone, a seal, and a guard. Seal, sword, and stone. I preached a message on those uh, themes one time. So what happened when Jesus burst forth from that tomb? Well, the stone was moved, showing that nature and the process of death could not keep him in the grave. The seal was broken, which showed that the authority of, of Rome or any imperial government had no authority over the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And the, stone, and, and the uh, swords and the hands of the guard proved ineffective as they fell backward with a blast of holy light. So sword and stone and seal bow before the presence of our resurrected Lord. He looked down from His holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners to set free those who were doomed to die. Christ announced this in His work. Right from the synagogues, He said that those who were in bondage and slavery the day had dawned for him to set them free, and so he did. Verse 21, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise, when peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. There is multinational worship that happens as a result of Zion being rebuilt, Jerusalem being restored, God dwelling with his people. Zion, Jerusalem, people, and kingdoms will break forth in praise. Final point this morning. As an anthem for trying times, Psalm 102 presents us a lament and affliction, an appeal to heaven, a publication of the gospel, and finally, a proclamation of sovereign glory. What to sing in sackcloth? Sing of the glory of the Lord. Example, verse 25. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. The testimony of creation speaks to the sovereign glory of our God. This is exemplary worship, expressions of praise, a salutation of the eternal renown of our great and sovereign and glorious God. Think of creation itself and its testimony. 
The handiwork of our Lord is visible all around us. By just a word He spoke, and there was light. God said, let there be, and so it was, in every element of creation. He who has the power to speak into being that which did not exist, that is to say in the Latin, ex nihilo, material was created out of nothing, by the word of God's almighty power. Though these may perish, He will remain. The Creator is the constant. He is the one who preceded this creation. He is the one who is eternal and will remain when He determines it has served its purpose and wears out like a garment and He changes it like a robe. Creation may pass away, but our Lord will endure forever. His sovereign glory must be proclaimed. Hebrews 1 echoes these verses. Turn there with me if you would. One more cross-reference. The author of Hebrews ties Psalm 102 to Jesus Christ explicitly as we see that this is indeed a messianic psalm. In 1.5, the author of Hebrews says, For to which of the angels did God ever say? And then there's a series of citations. Among them in verse 10, we have this. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. So our Lord Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the author and finisher of creation. They will perish, meaning the things that define our material reality right now, but He will remain. And the only thing that will remain with Him is that which His blood has purchased, and that which He deems to grace the new heavens and new earth with those who are sinners, those who do not repent, those who remain rebels and cherish their sins. And we see those lists of uh, sins all throughout the Scriptures, all the way through to the book of Revelation. Those who continue to take pride in their homosexuality, in their cowardness, in their drunkenness, in their rebellion against the Lord, just to name a few. They will be cast outside into the lake of fire. But those who trust in Jesus Christ to give them salvation and will uh, ransom them unto eternal life, they will not wear out like a garment. They will endure beyond the closing of this age and this chapter of history, and they will be with our Lord, you and I, if you're in Him today, in the new heavens and new earth. There is a surpassing greatness that is announced in these words. The testimony of creation speaks to a surpassing greatness. Creation, as beautiful as it is, speaks to one greater still that spoke it into being in the first place and ordained its purpose from the beginning. Finally, verse 27, You are the same and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. And finally, as Psalm 102 comes to a close, the author recognizes a covenant legacy. Surely, your own share in your immortality. They are heirs of eternal life. And this is the song, the glorious crescendo that we sing in sackcloth. We lament the affliction that we're in right now, but recognize there's a purpose to turn towards heaven, to make our appeal to the Lord of heaven and earth. And the publication of the gospel comes when his purposes become evident, even in times of judgment and in times of restoration. And all the while, His people ought to proclaim His sovereign glory and testify with creation 
and testify with his word of his surpassing greatness that can secure for his own the covenant legacy of eternal life. In closing an application, think of the historical moments that are fitting for Psalm 102. Think of Nehemiah's day. Nehemiah 1. These are his words. I sat down and wept, verse 6, and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. And I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Why is he moved in such anguish and prayer of repentance? Because news had been brought to his attention in verse 3. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exiles in great trouble and shame, and the walls of Jerusalem is broke, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. The stones and dust of the once great city caused Nehemiah to cry out with lament in his affliction of repentance and hope for restoration. God answers his prayer. That's what we've been reading in Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10. So the people are instructed, this is a holy day in chapter 8, uh, verse 9. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send the portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So you see, across the scope of God's purposes through the leadership of Nehemiah and his restoration of his people, that you move from lament to a proclamation of the gospel and his sovereign glory to praise and to celebration and to feasting. What begins in a heart of anguish, repentance, ends with eternal joy. This is what God has prescribed for us in times such as our own. Nehemiah understood it. Mary understood it. This morning's worship text in John 20, we find her crying. Why? Because even in death, she wanted to be with her Lord. Though, he, though she was no doubt devastated, there was something worse still that she would find the tomb empty and not know where, her, uh, where the body of her Savior lay. 2011, the Gospel of John, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing and she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away. Tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he said these things to her. Do you see again, Mary begins with weeping. And ends in praise. Why? Because the resurrection has happened in between. 
God has brought restoration to his people. God has saved them. So fitting moments in history for Psalm 102. They include the times of sorrow unto rejoicing in Nehemiah's day. They include the times of sorrow uh, in, in the days of Jesus, of the disciples, unto rejoicing and glory, having discovered him raised from the dead. And a fitting time, may I suggest as well, is right now in our history. Times of sorrow and affliction. If we treat this as a call to repentance and turn from our sins unto our Lord, perhaps He would have mercy upon us as individuals and our land as a collective, and we would find Him rebuilding a covenant legacy among us, His people. And that we might be once again on stronger footing. That we might proclaim the sovereign glories of our God and stand upon the gospel as our hope in times of trouble and to reject the, prom- the false promises of hope and assurance and security in the enemy's ways and means and to exalt Jesus Christ, make our appeal to heaven, lift our lament and affliction to him and realize that he holds the keys of health for tomorrow, of stability as a nation and eternal life for every saved soul. And so we find in Psalm 102, a sackcloth song for us to reinforce our prayers and songs with biblical themes of repentant worship. Let us close in prayer this morning. Father, I pray that we would take your scriptures to heart, that our response and our reaction in difficult times of trial would be informed by your holy scriptures, that we would recognize that in times of great sorrow and difficulty, that you bring a chastising affliction for the purpose of causing people to turn from their sins, to realize their weakness, their vulnerability, their frailty, and their wickedness in light of your holiness, and to place their faith and trust in the only one that can save them from their sinful condition. I pray that you would do that, Lord Jesus, in our day. And I pray that you would use your church to call for repentance, to call for turning from sin unto the only source of hope and salvation. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would do this ever more so and that we would see fruit. God, should you be merciful and answer these prayers unto rejoicing and restoration. And all of this, we pray that your kingdom would advance, that you would be glorified, that your gospel would be proclaimed and your sovereign glory would be echoed over the hillsides of our land unto the nations. And that you would find us, Lord Jesus, upon your return, occupying and fulfilling the mandate that those, the generation, Lord Jesus, on earth at that time are called to fulfill, honoring, glorifying you, Lord. We don't know when that time is, but we know we're called to occupy until then. So I pray that you find us faithful doing that when you call us home or when you return. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this day. And I pray, finally, if there are any in the hearing of this word that have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ and his shed blood, have not believed that his resurrection holds out hope of eternal life for them, I pray that they would repent of their sin, place faith in Christ, and find in him a perfect and sufficient Savior, and that they would run to somebody who knows Jesus. They would make a phone call as soon as they possibly can and ask them for the reason for the hope within and point them to Scripture and to gather them, Lord Jesus, soon we pray into the flock that we might assemble together again and praise your name for ransoming us from sin and destruction unto righteousness and eternal life. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.